I struggled. I struggled during that song. I struggled during that song. I struggled for myself, and I struggled for you. You know why? Because if we really believe what we just sang about, our lives would be different. If you and I really believe that God's grace and mercy was that great, that phenomenal, our lives would be different. So I struggle. I struggle for myself because I'm singing it and I'm sitting there going, God, I say it, but I don't believe it. And to be honest, I'm sitting there and I struggle for you because I hear you saying it, but you're the very same people who walk into my office and you feel like your life is being shattered because you don't genuinely believe that God's grace is enough. You don't. We just sang about the essence of the Christian life. We just sang about the essence of the Christian life. That if you genuinely come to believe God's grace and mercy in your life and what that means, our lives will be different. Look, everything that ails us, everything in our lives, our depression, our discouragement, our envy, our jealousy, our fear, our lack of courage, everything in our lives ultimately goes back to this root problem, which is we don't believe in God's and his mercy. We don't. I don't want to depress you or discourage you this morning, but I just, I just had to say that because here's the thing, you know. We think the sum total of the Christian life is about learning new insights. It's about learning, you know, it's like we hear a good sermon and we walk out going, boy, that was tremendous insight. Look, if you really listen to everything that I say, I don't really say anything all that new every week. Basically, my point comes down to this. You could hear a sermon, sing a song, it touches heart emotionally, but if you walk out of those doors and you don't believe in God's grace and what the cross means for you, your life will not change. That's why you've been going to church all your life. You and I don't believe it. We don't believe it. We, th- we think we do, we say we do, but we, oh. I got a couple emails I'm going to share with you. I got a ton of emails last Sunday after talking about the difference between religion and gospel. Boy, I had a nerve. I had a nerve. I had, I had a nerve that's been kind of, you know, been in there in this church for a while which is many of us even though we say we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and try and live out our lives we function from religion we're very religious people and we're going to talk about that a little bit more but let me share a couple emails I got with you okay a couple emails Um, I just uh, share some parts here this email I've been desperately looking for a church to call home I grew up in the Christian subculture. I found it especially difficult to tolerate anything short of authenticity in my life, partly because of growing up in the subculture and partly because of my own tendency to overanalyze and criticize everything without a dose of grace and mercy. How many of you relate to that? You grew up in a Christian subculture and you're just like cynical about the whole thing, you know? 
Uh, I've wrestled with every part of everything that I once called my faith. I struggle to separate tradition from culture with truth and engage those around me who have no frame of reference for God. While being surrounded by non-Christians at work and in grad school has made me into a thinking Christian, the lack of Christian community has also weakened me spiritually. The deep longing to connect with people is human. I've desperately attempted to find validity and affirmation in the physical because of the loneliness that lies beneath the surface so often emerges. God has graciously kept me from acting on my sinful desires, but these patterns are not sustainable. I do not know why I try so hard to find security and identity in anyone but Christ. Anybody relate? I sometimes wonder if I hold to the Lord, the Lord responsible because I've taken so many steps to address my own struggles through counseling, dialogue with my parents, only to find myself worse off than before. And then listen to this. What I've really appreciated what you're talking about, and especially this morning, that was last Sunday, is this, the reminder of who Jesus is and the challenge to consider what, if anything, he means to my life. I cannot simply encounter him and pass by. He has to mean something, whether I accept him or reject him. I've done my best to avoid him, probably out of fear of being offended, and even more so out of fear of being wholeheartedly accepted. Oh, boy, that's good. You hear what he's saying? He's saying part of the reason why I push God away isn't necessarily because I'm afraid. He says, I'm, I'm afraid because deep down inside there's something that's afraid of finally somebody saying, I accept you as you are. One of my greatest spiritual challenges has always been the attempt to earn my salvation after having received it freely. This is a sermon. <laughs> this is a sermon, okay? This guy should come up here and preach himself, Okay. I'm in my deepest struggles. I flee from the Lord, promising to return once I'm presentable and put back together. I'm accustomed to the condemnation and guilt that comes both innately and through decades of Pharisaic legalism in the church. I can manage that on my own quite well, but I'm unaccustomed to the overflowing grace, love, acceptance, validation, and affirmation that Christ offers me in spite of myself. And I think I have been too afraid and too prideful This is you sitting there out there today. Here's another email. Yesterday's sermon was especially rough on me. I love hearing that, by the way, you know. It's not a high compliment when you guys come up, I loved your sermon today. I, it's a high compliment. Some of you guys come up and go, that bothered me. Please don't come up today and go, that bothered me. Don't do that. I guess I owe you a bit of background where I'm from. I bet I'm a lot from where your brother is. I talked to my brother last week. Grew up in an uber-Christian home, always did the right thing, good Christian, super holy kids for long stretch, loving godly parents, but recently, just slowly but surely, walking away from the whole Christian thing. I still believe in God, no doubt. I still love God, but the whole Christian, the church, evangelistic thing, I'm totally turned off by it at all. And then this person says, by the way, this is an Asian-American And for those Asian Americans, you're going to sit there and go, oh my gosh, that person is telling my story. A lot of it because of our culture. I'm tired of failing. I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of trying to fit that mold of a good Christian. I'm tired of never being good enough, but always having known it's not even about doing or being good and knowing the right answers, knowing it, but never knowing, able to fully attain it. I'm tired of feeling dry and empty. If one word would describe me, it would be I'm numb. I am that person who's afraid of 
falling out of God's good graces, afraid that my rebelling will soon be met with harsh punishment. But he will send something, that he will send something horrible in my life to bring me back on my knees in submission to his authority and power. Where do we get that from? Religion. And these days I feel like I'm on that edge, teetering, gambling with God's good graces. And that fear has always kept me from falling too far away. But recently, I just keep pushing God, seeing how much of my rebelliousness he will put up with me before he smacks me down. You may not use these words, but isn't this how you feel? And you say he's not that kind of a God. Nothing I could do or never do will push him away and that he will never abandon us. His grace is infinite, limitless, and unfathomable regardless of me and my inadequacies. But I wanted to ask you this after Sunday, last Sunday, but never had the chance. What does that mean? To not have God abandon you? To have his overflowing grace? I mean, it all sounds nice and fluffy. God loves you so, and this person, you know, S-O, so much, you know. But it doesn't seem to change much of my life. I've been to retreats. I've been moved with emotion. But each time I come home, it's the same old, same old. It doesn't satisfy. And I know all the things of this world doesn't really satisfy either. But at least it's a temporary distraction to keep my mind from feeling lonely, sad, empty. We don't. If we genuinely believe that our lives would look entirely different, if we genuinely believe that that we are saved by grace and grace alone, and that the the, the grace of God has reached down inside and delivered us wretched, wicked sinners from our rebellion and sin, not because of anything that we do, but purely out of his grace and mercy. And if we believe that, that, look, you don't believe me? Why are you dating that person? Why are you so upset that you're not getting the affirmation approval from that person? Why are you so upset that you didn't get that job? You didn't get that, you didn't get, get into that school. You didn't get that grade. Why does, it, why does it hurt so much? Why does it matter to you so much, so much, that you receive that affirmation, validation, love, acceptance from anybody, ever, your boss, your parents, your teachers, whoever? And yet, God's cross, grace, comes shouting to us and says, in me, you are loved, you are accepted, you are of worth. And we go, yeah, that's good. Why? Why is it that there's no more joy in us than someone who doesn't know Christ? Why is it that we are driven by the same impulses for human approval and affirmation? Why is it that there's no joy? Why is it that there's no more passion for life in us than somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Why is it that we're not more kind, more compassionate, more loving towards those who don't know him? Why is it that we're just as unforgiving? I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I'd I'd, I'd depress you like I'm doing right now. The reality is this. The reality is faith in Scripture, faith in the gospel in Scripture is not just intellectual, mental assent. Faith is something that results in action or response every time in the Bible. So don't tell me that you believe this because you could recite some tired old Sunday school line. Jesus loves me, this I know. No, you don't. Because if you really did, your life would look different. Your life would look different. My life would look different. 
know why I think we struggle with this? And we struggle with this because of this. We struggle with this because even though we are saved by grace, saved by unconditional grace of God in our lives, the moment that we become a Christian, revert to what I call a religious approach to God. We, we, we come before God and say, I have nothing to offer, nothing to earn this thing, and I am believing by faith, and faith alone in your grace. And then the moment that we become a Christian, we revert to religion, and, and then we all of a sudden go, I am uh, obedient, that's why you accept me. I am obedient, that's why you love me. I am obedient, that's why you think Did you know that that's what Paul and the New Testament writers hammered away and again and again? Because he knew that you and I would have a tendency to do this. You and I have a tendency to begin the Christian life one way and then finish it another way. Let me show you a couple passages, okay? Let me show you a couple passages where Paul talks about this. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16. By the way, by the way, everybody look up here. If you're visiting today, today is a very unique day, exception day, okay? Because what I'm doing today essentially is I, I have to respond to a lot of these emails. I almost never do that. I have like next three, four sermons planned out, and I'm not, the, I'm, not, I'm not very good at like switching in the middle, you know? And so it stressed me out a lot this week and going, how do I address this, okay? And so what we're going to do today is we're in this series, Rediscovering Jesus. I'm going to share with you what I think is so foundational to everything that we talk about, everything that we do around here. That it's worth mentioning. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, 17. This is in the New Living Translation. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of this good news, that's the gospel about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news, the gospel, tells us how God makes us right in his sight. You want a definition of what the gospel is? Here it is. Very simple, right? It's how God makes us right in his sight. Now, we say in our church that there's both a cosmic dimension and an individual dimension. Cosmic dimension talks about how God makes the entire world right. Cosmic dimension talks about the kingdom of God and how it's come into the world to, 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 to essentially renew our world from all evil, all injustice. And we talk about that a ton in this church. There's an individual component. God not only makes the world right, he makes you and I right. And this is what it says. This is accomplished from first to start, start to finish by faith. Uh, everybody, did you notice that? How do we start this? By faith. How do we finish it? By working. How do we finish it? By earning. How do we finish it? By trying really hard. How do we finish it? By obeying. We start this thing by faith. We finish by what? Hello. No, 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 Peter, no, 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 you don't understand. I bowed, I bowed, I knelt, I start this thing by faith, I believe, but then once I'm done with that, I'm moving on to religion, I earn. Paul says, no, how'd you start? By faith, in what? The gospel, how God makes me right in his sight. How do you finish it from beginning to end? By faith, by believing, that the same way that God makes me right in his sight, the beginning is how Let me take another passage, okay? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I, I could have picked like 10 different scripture passages, but I decided to choose these two. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, okay? This is the message version, and I love, I love the sort of the, 
I'm sorry, I love the ghetto language he uses, you know what I mean? Just to like be real. He just like, hey, hey, let me just tell you, this is the message version of what Paul is trying to get at. Listen to what he says, okay? You crazy Galatians! Don't you love that? You crazy Galatians! Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened! For it's obvious that you no longer have crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you all, okay? How'd your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to cray? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough, strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Isn't that good? Oh, it gets better. He goes on. Verse 11. The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God, and that's the real life. Look, rule keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself more and more in rule keeping a fact observed in scripture the one who does these things rule keeping that is continues to live by them Christ redeemed us from self-defeating cursed life of rule keeping by absorbing it completely into himself do you remember the scripture that says curses everyone who hangs on a tree that's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross he became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse and now because of that the air is cleared and we are all able to receive God's life his spirit in and with us by believing hallelujah anybody see the reason why we just for, for many of us we're sitting there going what Okay, you just completely thrown off my worldview. I, I, I know that I become a Christian by faith in the gospel, that even though I'm more wicked and more sinful than, than I dare believe, that I'm more accepted and more loved in Christ. He makes us right in God's sight by faith. I get that. But Peter, the second after, give me a Bible. Tell me what I need to do so that I can earn. And Paul says, you crazy. Just as you couldn't start this thing on your own, what makes you think you could finish this on your own? And yet, our lives are driven by this impulse of religion, rule-keeping, gotta do the do's, keep away from the don'ts. And Paul says, you do that, it'll result in spiritually dead, spiritually stagnant, prideful, self-defeated Christian living. The difference between a Christian and a nominal believer is that the gospel is spiritually real to you. Don't tell me about what you know. It's real to you. It's real to you. The difference between a growing Christian and a stagnant Christian is that the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel is refreshed in your heart regularly, daily, second by second, moment. Are you tracking? Last week, I just, just pummeled right through the difference between religion and gospel. And I got emails from people saying, Peter, that's the essence of what our church is. That's the essence of what Jesus came to preach and do. And you just finished the whole thing in like two minutes. 
So what I want to do this morning is this. I want to take some time. Title of this morning's sermon's message is The Gospel versus Religion Rewind because well, we, need to, we need to go back, okay, and go over these things. One, a couple notes. If you're a Christian, you sitting there, like Pastor Stephen Sharkey, we're talking, he goes, Peter, I was fortunate to grow up in a church where I heard that same message like 20 times. He gets it. It affects his life. If that's you this morning, you just sit there, big smile on your face and go, oh, this is so good. Yeah. But outside the 10 of you that can do that, okay, so the rest 500 plus of us, this is the heart of the Christian life. Religion The essence of religion is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I I do, therefore I am loved. I, 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 I follow the rules and regulations. And not only that, but you say, so therefore I have a claim on God. He owes me. Heart of the religion, the gospel. Even though I am more wicked and more sinful than I dared believe, In Christ, I am more accepted and more loved than I dared hope at the same time. How do they differ? How is religion and gospel different? And here's what you need to do today. As you sit there, as we go through each of these, you need to sit there and honestly and genuinely reflect on your heart and go, God, I've been a Christian for X amount of years. It's the driving impulse of everything that I... Look, look, look. Can I just say this? If I don't do this well, I don't need to preach any sermon series on sex and relationships. You know why? Because if you don't get this, I don't care how many sermons you hear about sexuality and relationships, you're going continue to continue to pursue dysfunctional relationships. Okay? I don't need to sit here and preach a sermon series on money and being a good steward because if you don't believe genuinely the gospel has grabbed and melted your heart, you're never going to be radically generous. Religion says that you should trust in what you do as a good moral person. The gospel says, John, are you there? perfectly sinless life of Jesus because he alone is the only good and truly moral person who will ever live. By the way, you know what will really help this morning is if you agree with these statements, will you say amen? Amen. (laughs) It's going to be a long morning, Michael. Religion? Listen, not Christians here, especially Christians too. Religion says You need to get cleaned up before you can come to God. Hey, religion says, go back to number one, John. I'll tell you when we go to number two. You need to get cleaned up before you can go to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that God establishes a relationship with you through his son just as you are. Then he makes you clean. Do you see the difference? You don't believe this though. You know why? Because even as a Christian, you say, I've done this, I've done that, I've got these things in my life, so how can I go to church? How can I approach God? That's religion. Gospel says you are radically and unconditionally accepted by Christ. He makes you right. 
then he makes you clean. Oh, man. This is great news for some of you out there because this is the very thing that's kept you from approaching Christ. Religion also says that at the end of the day, there's a cosmic scale. And so at the end of the day on Judgment Day, God will sort of weigh the good that I've done and weigh the bad that I've done. And I really hope that the good sort of outweighs the bad. And secretly, deep down inside, we go, God, I hope you grade on a scale. And I hope, furthermore, God, that you grade, you know, in groups, you know, and I get to be in a group of people that I just, like, messed up. (laughs) So God just kind of goes, you know, compared to them, you ain't so bad. You could go on in. (laughs) What does the gospel say? The gospel says this simply, Jesus Christ lived the life that you should have lived, a perfectly sinless life. And check this out. Paul uses this analogy. He says that when you put your faith in Christ, God takes that perfectly sinless righteous life of Christ and he deposits it like a bank account, deposits it into your life. Hello? In such a way that when God sees you, he doesn't see the messed up, long way to go person. When God sees you, he sees a perfectly sinless righteous life that Christ lived. You mean like at the end? No! Now! Now! And he died the death that we should have died. What does that mean? That means the Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And, and that means that, that, that we all, we all deserve what's coming to us, which is sin, uh, which is death, spiritually, uh, physically, in every way. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and he dies the death that we should have died. Meaning, on the cross, he takes the punishment, the wrath of God for all the sin, all the injustice, all the evil in the world. And so therefore, do you know what that means? There is no more punishment coming your way. You mean like at the end? No, now. Your punishment was nailed to the cross with Jesus. It is religion to go, I've done this and that, and God is going to punish me. No, you're going to reap the consequences of your sin. That's not God punishing you. Number two. Religion says that the world is filled with good people and bad people. And we have to sort of judge them in order to find our own identity. The gospel says that we're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God who are either repentant or repentant. This isn't just true, but it tells you if you function from religion or gospel. You function from religion if your view of the world is, ah, good people, bad people. How do you know? Well, I've got these lists of things in my heart that says good people don't do those things and bad people do those things. And we sort of put these people into cookie-cutter categories and we judge them. And part of the reason why we have to judge them is religion is about performance. Religion is about how well you do. And how are you going to know how well you're doing? You're never going to compare yourself to God, God forbid, because you know you're not going to measure up very well. So what do we do? We measure ourselves to other people. And when you measure yourself to other people, you're naturally going to judge them and go, I'm better than them. I'm not Mother Teresa, but at least I'm not Tony Soprano. <laughs> For those of you that have no idea of that cultural reference, Tony, forget it. I just, he's a bad person, okay? <laughs> See, I did it. See how bad that is? Right there. I just did that. I just did that. See how natural it is. If you look at the world and you go, good people, bad people, you are functioning from religion. You know why? 
Because the only thing that separates you from the bad people is the fact that God has exposed his grace to you. That's it. That's it. By the way, if this is how we live our lives, Christians would never be accused of being hypocrites. Do you know why we're accused of being hypocrites? Hypocrite is somebody who says, you have to do such and such to be a good person because if you do such and such, you're bad. And what happens when you do the bad? That person's going to go, you're a hypocrite. But what if we say, it's not about being good or bad. We're all sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. It's about whether we're repentant or not. So I'm not any better than you. You, They won't accuse you of being a hypocrite. They may accuse you of being silly. They may accuse you of going, that's just wacky. But they'll never come to you and go, you're a hypocrite. Number three, religion believes that appearing as a, oh, this is a good one. Oh, this is a good one. You ready? Religion believes that appearing as a good person is the key. The gospel believes that being honest and authentic is the key. Do you know why this is so powerful? Look, again, if the whole point of religion is performance, then being a good person will be the end goal of everything that you do. Why? Because if you don't measure up and you're not a good person, what do you have? If the end goal of everything they do is I want to be a good person and you realize I'm not very good, I'm pretty bad, I'm pretty wicked, what's left? It's psychologically traumatic for a religious person to admit that they're not a good person because the end goal of religion is I need to be a good, are you following? If you're religious, here's a telltale sign, you're incredibly sensitive to criticism. Anybody that picks something out, you, you, Why? Why? Because it's psychologically traumatic for a religious person to go, I'm good, I behave well, and when somebody comes and says, you know, you're not, religion just rises up in our hearts, and we go, how dare? You know what else it does? Here's the gospel. Ready? Although we are more wicked and sinful than we dared believe. Although we are more wicked and sinful, can we just be honest? That's just being real. That's just being real. Romans chapter 7, Paul says that Christians have indwelling sin within us. The Spirit of God has come and the Spirit of God is renewing us, phenomenal news, and doing all kinds of things. But the reality is there is remaining indwelling sin in us. But the gospel comes and says, I know. Religion is, I can't, but gospel comes and says, you are more wicked and you are more sinful than you dare believe. Yes, you are. And it's not psychically traumatic, it's not psychically traumatic to go, What? For gospels, because the second half of the gospel is this. Even though you are more wicked and more sinful than you dare believe, you are more loved and you are more accepted in Christ than you dared hope at the same time. Do you know why that's so powerful? Think about any relationship. Can you be honest and authentic with somebody that that you don't know if they're going to accept you if they found out the real you? That's why our relationships are messed up. That's why our relationships are flawed. That's why our relationships are jacked up. Do you know why? Because we don't have a lot of relationships where we can go, this is me, all of me. I'm sick it. I'm sick it. I'm sick it. I'm wicked. I just made up a word. I am sick it. That means I am sinful and wicked. I am sick it, okay? I am sick it. Gospel comes, and you know what it gives us? Gospel comes, it gives us assurance. Why? Because gospel, look, if you don't believe that you are uncondemnable, Romans 8, 1, undisapprovable, if you don't believe that you are absolutely unconditionally accepted by your Heavenly Father, you're never going to be real with your sins. 
It's going to be traumatic to go. Look, here's a telltale sign. How is your repentance life? How is your confession life? See, repentance and confession is freeing and joyful if you know that you're accepted. But it's traumatic if you don't think you're The only way that you can be honest and real with yourself with God is if you know, God, you know that I'm, he goes, I already know. You know that I am sick. And he goes, I know. <laughs> but what does that do? Knowing that gives us assurance to go, but God, I am unconditioned love. I am unconditioned accepted. And God, I'm going to be real. I'm going to be authentic, not only with you, but other people. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to put spin on it. I'm not going to repress it. I'm going to be open and pursue change. First steps towards change is being real and honest with who you are. You'll never be that if you function from religion. Next one. Religion says that if we obey God, he will love us. The gospel says that it is because God has loved us through Christ that we can obey. Amen? Amen. But we don't believe it. Do you know why? If I were to ask you, why are you obedient? Why are you a Christian? Here's the things we say. Because I think I'm going to regret it in the morning. Because God will get me. Because I'll be embarrassed. Because I, if I do that, I'll hurt these people. Those are motivations, secondary motivations, and some of them are good reasons. But here's what the Bible says. Titus chapter 2. Bible says only the grace of God teaches you. Only the grace of God will result in real change. Look at this passage. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, that is grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Listen. If you say to yourself, I can't, I can't keep sleeping around. This is wrong. And your motivation is, because I hate the way I feel in the morning. If your motivation is, because I'm tired of the guilt and condemnation. If your motivation is, what if somebody found out? If your motivation is, what if God gets me and punishes me? If that's your motivation, you will never overcome that temptation. The Bible says the grace of God. Because you know what the grace of God comes and says? He says, you're not acting as someone who is loved unconditionally. You're not acting as his child. It's not because he will abandon you that you should obey. It's not because he will punish you that obey. It's because the gospel says because he has said at an inestimable cost, he will never abandon you. He will never punish you. That's why you should obey. How can you continue to live in the sin that the Son of God bled and died for, that the Son of God was ripped to pieces for? How can you? That's your motivation. Do you get that? Do you get that? And unless that grabs a hold of your heart, you're going to continue to function from, if I do that, I'm a bad Christian. If I do that, it's against my Christian principles. Those motivations will never work. Number five, religion claims that sanctification justifies me, that right behavior gives me a right standing before God. The gospel claims that justification enables sanctification. That is a knowledge of my right standing before God, regardless of what I do or don't do, leads to right behavior. Look, some of you guys are sitting there and you're just feeling guilty, condemned. Not because of anything I'm saying or anybody else is saying. You're just feeling this 
huge sense of like, oh, why? Because you've said to yourself, I've got certain measurement, I've got certain things I need to do in order to be accepted by God, loved by God, to perform right, da 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 and you're failing, and you're just feeling the sense of guilt and condemnation, and you don't even know why. Some of you might not be feeling guilt and condemnation, but you know what you're feeling? You're feeling anxiety, you're feeling insecurity, why? Some of you guys actually are really, really good at religion. And I, I just, I think, you're real, in other words, you are really good, super motivated, super disciplined. You get up in the morning, crack of dawn, you read the Bible, you pray, and you, you know, you do the thing, you do it really, really well. But deep down inside, there's thinking of, how long can I keep this up? How much longer before the hammer drops? You know what's interesting? The person that emailed me the second email, she grew up in a Korean, I don't know, maybe not Korean, I, I, maybe Chinese, I don't know. Her last name, throwing me off a little bit. Anyway, not important, not important, not important. Here's the important thing. Get yourself together. Here's the important thing. The important thing is this. The important thing is this person says, you know what, when I was growing up in youth group, doing the church's retreats, I was spiritually on. And I just, and then when I, you know, here, here's the thing. If you're, if you're religious and you're pursuing religion and that's how you approach life, what happens when you're doing all the religious stuff? You're going to feel like you're spiritually on. Does that make sense? Because the way you feel good and the way you feel spiritual is by keeping a bunch of rules and you're keeping a bunch of rules. And by the way, how hard can it be for a freshman in high school who lives in a Christian bubble to keep the rules? Can we just be real? How hard can it be? How hard can it be, right? For a seventh grader, for a seventh grader crying out loud, what's this temptation, right? What's this temptation? So for those of you that grew up in youth group and Christian youth group and you're at the stage you're going, oh, my life, what's going on? The reason is because 7th, 8th grade and freshman, sophomore, senior high school, you weren't really living in a life in which you were bombarded by which comes after you graduate college. And all of a sudden you go, but I used to be spiritually on. Were you spiritually on? We're really, really good at religion. You were actually really good at religion. And again, What kind of temptations do you have as a freshman in high school living in a Christian bubble? Or for that matter, those of you that are 22 years old and living in a Christian bubble. Oh, I feel like I'm spiritually on. Spiritually on? Anybody can be spiritually on in that bubble. Hello. (laughs) I'm sorry. Number six. Religion leads to an uncertainty about my standing before God because I never know if I've done enough to please God. Constant insecurity. The gospel leads to certainty about my standing before God because the finished work of Jesus on my behalf on the cross. Let me just put this up here. The gospel, you know what it says? The determining factor in your relationship to God is not your past, it's not your present, but it's Christ's past and Christ's present. Did you hear that? The determining factor in your relationship is not what you did two years ago, even what you did last night, actually, but it's what Christ has done in the past and Christ is doing in the present. And this doesn't change because you had a bad Saturday night. This doesn't change because you had a bad week, but a good Monday or a good Tuesday. God doesn't run when you sin. God doesn't put up a wall when you mess up. God doesn't need a cooling off period. Where do we get that from? I've done bad. I know you're mad. So go cool off a little bit and then I'll come. Where do we get that from? God does not need a cooling off period. You know what, guys? Let me just say this. This this came so powerfully to me. Listen, 
I am a flawed, sinful human being, and yet I'm a parent. When Parker messes up, when Parker does something just as a three-year-old terrible, what kind of a father would I be? Even though he has been a bad boy for him to go, Daddy, I'm hungry for me to go, you know, you don't deserve food. That's what we do. That's what we do. Let me give you another example. You think that what, what you're doing, what you're doing, affects whether God guides you or not, right? Right? You do. You're like, if I'm in sin, God's not going to guide. If Parker has been a bad boy, and he walks outside of our kitchen, walks onto the deck where there's like 15 foot of steps, and he's going to hurt himself, what kind of a father would I be if I go, he's been a bad boy, so I'm just going to let him be? And yet, that's what you believe. Because you believe that the determining factor in your relationship to God is not Christ's past and his presence, but your past and your presence. You don't believe it. Everybody say this with me. God doesn't need to cool off. <laughs> Say it again. God doesn't need to cool off. <laughs> yeah, you don't believe it. <laughs> you know, I know you don't. He needs to cool off, Peter. I know, you know. Hellfire, brimstone. He needs to like, oh, calm down. And then I'll... <laughs> I just have a couple more. Seven. The goal of religion is to get from God such things as health, wealth, insight, power, and control. The goal of the gospel is not the gift God gives, but rather God himself as the gift given to us by grace. Is the sum total of your relation to God an endless list of requests? No, really. How are you doing about the fact that you're still single? Bitter? Angry? Upset? How are you doing about the fact that you don't have a relationship with that guy or that girl? Ever feel like going, God, what the heck? <laughs> How are you doing about the fact that you didn't get that grade, didn't get that job, didn't get that promotion? How are you doing about the fact that there are things in your life that you really necessarily don't quite need in your life right now? Do you really believe that God's loving kindness is all that you need? Are you function from religion or gospel? Quickly, next one. Religion sees hardship as punishment for sin. Gospel sees hardship as sanctified affliction. That is an opportunity to share in Christ's suffering in order that we might be conformed to his likeness in a greater way. How you handle trials and sufferings and storms in your life will not ultimately, will be a strong indicator of whether you embrace the gospel or religion. Why? Because here's what gospel says, uh, religion says. Religion says, look, I, I, I do these things, that's where God accepts me. I do these things, I obey, that's why God loves me. And so what happens when trials and suffering come into our lives? Here's what happens. We either go, God, I'm mad at you. Why? Because look at all they do for you. I don't deserve this. Look at all they do for you. I don't deserve that. Not now. Or we get incredibly mad at ourselves and we go, I must not be doing enough. It's because I'm not doing enough. I got to do more. So we go from I hate thee to I hate me. I hate thee and I hate me. No, the gospel says, the gospel says, look, 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 look. Your heavenly father loves you unconditionally. He has proved that once and for all by dying the ultimate death on your behalf. He says he's not going anywhere. And so when suffering and trials come, first remember that your savior, your Lord, your master 
showed you the path of righteousness. That before a crown, there's cross. Before there's righteousness, there's suffering. And then when suffering comes into our lives, we get to... We get to sense him not only uh, suffering for us on the cross, but him suffering with us in the furnaces of our lives. And that gives us encouragement, and that motivates us not to go, God, I hate you. Why? Because he has showed you. He has showed you of his unconditional love. Oh, you don't say, I hate me. I must be doing something wrong. Why? Because it's not about what you do or don't do. He's already paid the price for you. I got this email. from a young lady in our church who's had three miscarriages in the last two years. She gave me permission to share this. I can't even fathom. Jenny and I are parents of two beautiful kids. I can't even fathom happening once, three times. This is what she says. We still remain fearful The storm is not over. It's always not quiet. It feels as though we are in the midst of a storm that may not end anytime soon as our hope of parenting biological children remains unconfirmed. While this is nowhere near the end of the world for us, it is still something that deeply troubles us. The thing that continually helps us is the fact that God has never let us down. Wish we had time to tell of all the difficult things we've been through and all the ways that God has come through. Peter and and she says miraculously we have been graced with the knowledge of God's love for us and it is enough to keep us clinging close to we are so blessed that God has given us very real examples of how to love and that God has given each other to share our experience it's amazing how God has used tragedy and disappointment in our lives to continually show how much he loves us and how much he has given us. This is why even though we have small anxiety attacks, whenever we go to the doctor for the next appointment, we still go and we still hope. It's also why when the storm ends and the next one comes, we can say, all is well with our souls. There is no possible way to have this attitude if you function from religion. The only way that a person can live this if the gospel of Jesus Christ has so radically and powerfully embraced them. couple things real quick here religion ends in either pride number nine because I think I'm a better I'm better than other people or despair because I continually fall short of God's standards the gospel ends in humble and confident joy because of the power of Jesus that worked for me in me through me and in spite of me life life transformation comes when you believe that God's grace is wider than your wanderings God's grace is stronger than your weaknesses God's grace is greater than your guilt. God's grace is more amazing than you've ever fathomed. How's your joy life? As I said last week, there's a big difference between 
a piano student who plays all the right notes and a piano student who makes beautiful music. There's a difference between someone, an actor in a B-movie who recites the lines because he needs to without conviction or someone who lets loose, lets their creativity, their conviction come through. There's a big difference between a dancer who carefully traces each step and someone who just cuts loose to dance. This morning, as we did last Sunday, before we enter into communion, I actually wanted to give another opportunity for anybody out there. You may have grown up Catholic, been to church, did the religion. But as you sit there, you're saying to yourself, Natalie, will you come on up? We're going to get ready here. As you're sitting there, you're going, you know what? I, I don't know if I've ever embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've embraced religion. Every one of those points, every one of those points dictates how I've lived my life. See, in our church, you guys, when we offer an invitation to follow Christ, for those of you that cringe at this because you grew up in the church, revival, whatever, you know, turn the lights off, soft music in the background, although we will have music in the background, soft music in the background. Close your eyes, everybody bow your heads and put your hands up. You know, we don't do that in our church. Here's the reason why we don't do that in our church, because we believe that following Christ is not just a one-time decision. Following Christ is a journey where you say, I'm not where I need to be, but I'm interested. I am wanting to learn more. I'm done with religion, but this gospel thing, I I don't think I've ever embraced it, and I want to live my life anew. This is good news. This is good news. And the reason why we do it with the lights open and everybody looking is because that person that comes up front is saying, I can't do this by myself, and so I need a community of people. Will you walk with me? Will you walk with me? Will you walk with me? And the people that are coming up here isn't just for show. They're coming up here because they're literally saying, I'm going to call you. I'm going to email you. We're going to get together for coffee. We're going to get together for lunch, and we're going to spend this time together. I'll walk with you. That's all. So it's no big deal. You know, people think, Peter, do you ever get disappointed, discouraged if nobody comes up? Heck no. Why would I? God does the work. I have nothing to do with it. I just do the invitation. So this morning, hi, balcony. Some love. Some love. I love y'all, even though you show up late. I love (laughs) y'all. Much love, nothing but love, (laughs) nothing but love. You guys, you guys, at this time, and you know what? If you're afraid to come up by yourself and there's somebody sitting next to you that's been meaningful to you, say, hey, will you come on up with me? I want to begin this journey. I'm done with religion. I want to move forward to this gospel of Jesus Christ that has radically come for me.
So at this time, if there's anybody, will you stand? Come on up forward. Stand up and come on up forward. Come on forward. I'll give you a big hug. I'll have some other folks that'll come on up and pray with you, pray for you. Wait a little longer. Come on up, brother. Come on up. You know, I... (laughs) Hey, what's your name? Joe. Joe. What's your name? I said I give hugs, so I got to give hugs. <laughs> I thought you were going to come up. Come on up. Come on up. And what's your name? John. 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 Peter. What's your name? Rosalina. Peter. You're, you're with her. Okay. Hi. What's your name? Those of you guys, come on up. I'm going to ask New Community Church family, as you've prayerfully prayed, these are folks, these are men and women. They're not up here for show. They're men and women who say, I want to begin this journey. It's not a moment in time, a journey. So I need you to come on up. New Community Church, come on up. And I need you guys to come on up. And I need you to come on up because you're not just saying, I'm going to come up just to pray. You're coming up and saying, I want to get to know you. I want to get to pray with you. I want to walk this journey with you. You are not in this by yourself. You're never in this by yourself. So as the new community comes up, I need you guys to go and surround yourself to one or two of these folks, okay? Make sure that every person that's come on up has somebody with them. This is church being the church. Make sure that everybody has somebody with them. After we're done with prayer, I'm going to be asking those of you that came up to go with Pastor Stephen Sharkey and Pastor Michael Washington to downstairs in the foyer area where they will talk with you and walk with you. Church, new community, now we can bow our heads and now we can pray. And at this time, by the way, can we just clap and just praise God for who he is and what he's done? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, Jesus. Those of you that are standing up front and laying your hands on these brothers, precious brothers and precious sisters. I want you to pray with me as I pray right now. And church, will you join me right now even as we pray? Oh God, oh God. God, the Christian life, the journey is difficult. It's a long, hard path. And it's made impossible if we begin by grace, but we pursue religion. 
And God, these men and women that have boldly and courageously come forward have declared, Father, with their testimony of coming up and saying, I am not going to pursue religion. I want to pursue the gospel of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has done for me and in me. God, I pray and ask right now as hands are laid and prayers are being prayed, that this moment in time in which they come up, Father, would just be the beginning point of this long and beautiful and adventurous journey of learning to follow this master who has given his all to us. And that the, and that, and that the adventure is, has a lot, of, a lot of difficulties, but that you walk with us, that other people walk with us, that we are not alone in this journey. We are never alone in this journey. Jesus, I pray and ask right now in your name that you, Father, would send your Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, and begin to work, begin to speak, begin to teach, begin to love. Thank you for the tears. Thank you for the assurance. Thank you for your work in our lives. God, will you keep these men and women this week? Father, I pray that you would connect them. They would, Father, begin in Scripture and, could, and, and learn and begin this journey of what it means to follow you. Protect them from the enemy that would try and rob this work that you've done. Protect them from the enemy, God, who would, who would cast doubts in their hearts and their lives in such a way that the commitment that they made and the decision they're making is real. It's real. It's real. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you that came forward, will you guys, with Pastor Michael and Stephen, some of you guys that came up, you guys are welcome to go down with these pastors, okay? Uh, the pastors want to uh, just get some information from you and talk with you, okay? So will you go with them? Stephen and Michael, will you lead them? Worship team, will you come on up? We're going we're gonna to get ready for communion. We're going to get ready for communion, so let's pray together. God, we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, as we at this moment come forward, and as we break bread, and as we pour the wine, as we together as body of Christ, as we together as church, God, partake in this amazing gift that you've given to us as a remembrance, as a reminder of the powerful truth that we talked about today. And God, I especially want to pray as we come forward, God, as we come forward and receive the elements, God, Father, will you work powerfully? Will you extend your grace? Will you work in a powerful way in such a way that we would have that assurance, that we would have that encouragement, that the truth of what we already know in our minds would melt our hearts? What we already know in our minds would transform and change our hearts, God. Will you do that powerful work today as we come to you? Will you do that powerful work as we come to you? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup represents a new covenant of my blood shed for you. The blood that cleanses, purifies, forgives, and accepts. 
So as you take the bread and dip it in the cup, do it in remembrance of me that the Son of God came in flesh, lived a life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, so that in Christ, although we are more wicked and sinful than we dare believe in him, we are more accepted and more loved than we dared hope. Than we dared hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Servers, will you guys come forward? There will be servers all over the sanctuary in front, on the side. I want to encourage you guys to worship with the worship team. Feel led. The cross is available for you. I want to encourage some of you guys to come and kneel at the foot of the cross and lift up prayers and do business with God. Whenever you're ready, the Lord invites you. Please come forward. Please come forward. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You encountered God today. God loves you. He is for you. He is with you. Go in peace, but also in victory, knowing that he is with you. Have a great, great Sunday, you guys. We'll see you back here next Sunday.